Ecclesiastes. Now we haven't done a textual study in a while in this Ministers of the Roundtable format. And so our desire was to return to that with this next series. The other thing we realized is that we have not done a textual study from an Old Testament book yet. And so we decided that was the direction we'd like to go. And we chose the book of Ecclesiastes because it's not a book of history like you might find between Genesis and Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's not a prophet it's wisdom literature. And within wisdom literature, you encounter a lot of, uh, of challenging thoughts, but you also encounter a lot of practical application. So we felt like Ecclesiastes might be a unique book for us to spend some time studying. Not only that, we found out that among the four of us, it's not a book we have generally taught from. It's not a book that we have conducted classes from very often, and so we felt it would be a nice challenge for ourselves to spend some time studying this book. So for us, this is a unique study, and we pray that it will be a beneficial study for you. We will turn to the text in just a moment, but as we like to do with any text that we start examining, we want to do a little bit of background information first. We want to look at the uh, authorship of the book. We want to look at the recipients of the book, and we want to look at the purpose of the book. So we want to begin first by, by asking Jay to get us started by telling us something about the author of this text called Ecclesiastes. Jay? Okay, so starting to look at the authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes, I think we are going to dive into the text just a little bit because verse 1 really starts this discussion off with that. I'll read Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1, the words of the preacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. So even though a name is not mentioned, you know, I, comma, Paul writing this letter, something like that, there's not a name being offered here, we see a strong amount of evidence leading to one certain individual who more than likely wrote this work, and that's Solomon. And we see that, that's long-standing tradition in faith that Solomon wrote this book, and we see how he not only abides by all the qualifications there in verse 1, one who is speaking from an experience, we're going to get to that in a second, a son of David and a king of Jerusalem. And we see evidence that this is more than likely Solomon also in the discourse found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And if you look at it very quickly, you'll see that I said to myself, I said of laughter, I explored this, I enlarged my works, I made gardens. We see as this man went through, he really did try everything that was under the sun. And this would align perfectly what up that, goes, that happened in 1 Kings chapter 11, as Solomon, being given the gift of wisdom, begins to explore the pleasures, the enjoyments of the world. And so not only we see that, we see back in verse 16 of chapter 1, another verse that would point to Solomon being the only man, not just a son of David, not just a king in Jerusalem, but the only man that could really fit this description of being the author of Ecclesiastes. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And we know the example of God giving Solomon wisdom as a blessing specifically to him more than anybody else, and that is how he was able to, to, to bring Jerusalem to its superiority like he did with God's help. And so once again, I, and I think kind of simply put as we move on, tradition says Solomon, and the text also seems to point only to Solomon being the one who had done that. And, and, I, and I think practically the only person who could have enjoyed and been, been able to enjoy all those things under the sun 
would have been the, more than likely the richest man to have maybe ever lived is Solomon himself. You know, and there's a lot of great um, parallels that you can see between Solomon's life and the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, uh, if you're looking just at chapter 1 and verse 16, where it, it says uh, that, that uh, the author of Ecclesiastes talks about having acquired great wisdom. That might make you think back to 1 Kings chapter 3, where Solomon asks God for wisdom and he's given it. And God would declare that, that I give you a wise and discerning mind so that no one like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Solomon was uniquely gifted with wisdom. You can see um, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, which was mentioned by, by Jay, the, the acquisition of wealth. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 10 in particular about how wealthy Solomon was. You can see in uh, the... Uh, it's always me. You can see in... Ecclesi I'm going to clip it here. See in... I think Kevin just likes to play tricks on me. Am I still silent? Okay. First Kings chapter 2 and verse 8, there's mention, I mean, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 8. There's mention of the author having many concubines. And we can go over and, and see just how many he had with his wives. There's all these comparisons. And Jay made, uh-oh. And Jay made reference to, to them. But just the, the comparative nature between Ecclesiastes and First Kings there's just too much evidence there to suggest somebody else. Ben or Mingu, you want to add anything on the authorship before we move on? Well, so I think collectively we, we would all say that the author of Ecclesiastes is most likely Solomon because he fits the bill so well. But what about the audience? Who is Solomon writing to? You know, when we go to the New Testament, we look at all these epistles and we figure out, okay, he's writing to this church, that church, that sort of thing. What about this generic piece of wisdom literature called Ecclesiastes? Ben, what do you have to say about the audience of this particular writing? Well, you look at the Hebrew uh, canon. They, this book is called Koheleth. That's a Hebrew word, which means assembly. I'm not even doing anything. It means assembly, church, or congregation. Uh, that Hebrew word is koheleth. And then the Greek version of the Bible came out, the Septuagint, and it was translated into the word ekklesia. All right, we see this, this in English, ecclesiastes. Well, they saw the word ekklesia and said, don't want to translate that, let's just transliterate it the same way they did with baptism, the same way they did with some of these other words we find from the Greek. Let's just transliterate it instead of trying to explain it. So we see this word ecclesiastes. It's obviously from the word ecclesia that we find from the Greek. And we know in the New Testament that that means just the same as koheleth meant. It means congregation, assembly, or church. Well, did Solomon, this preacher, have a church? Did he have a, a congregation? Did he have an assembly in the same sense that we have them today? Well, no. But we see that he is this preacher, verse 1, verse 12. He's the preacher or the teacher, depending on how you're looking at it, depending on what translation of that word you look at. 
He is the preacher speaking to the congregation, the assembly of Israel. So this letter is a sermon or a lesson from Solomon the preacher to the congregation of Israel as a whole. We were noting earlier that it's interesting that it's not entitled The Preacher and all the lessons from the preacher, but I think it's entitled the, the church or the assembly or the congregation because these are lessons, these are truths that Solomon had already gained. and He was imparting that same wisdom, those same lessons, those same experiences to the congregation of Israel as a whole because those were lessons that he needed to have learned and he wanted to pass that on before he left. And we see that this is probably written towards the end of his life. After he had already experienced all of those things, after he had already uh, uh, um, gotten all of those great possessions, all of those great things that he acquired, he writes this to the congregation of Israel as a whole to teach them and to show them what he had learned and the conclusions he had to make. So this book, Ecclesiastes, we can find a definite correlation to us. Because even though we are not the church of Israel, we're not the congregation of Israel, what are we? We are the church. We are the assembly of God. And so just the same as he is writing to the congregation of Israel, we can look at it as if he's writing to our congregation tonight the ecclesia, the church of Christ. So that's the authorship, and that's the audience, and if Kyle's mic is working, I think he'll take it over from here. One other thing we want to mention as we, at the outset is the purpose of a book. And Ecclesiastes is, is a, a fascinating book in terms of its purpose. Do you, if you were with us last week, uh, we concluded our series called Got Questions. And the question we posed last week had to do with the purpose of life. What is our purpose? And we did not intend this correlation, but it exists. The whole idea behind the book of Ecclesiastes is the search for purpose. So I want you to notice Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 3. It's chapter 2, verse 3. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he gave us a glimpse into the purpose of his text here. He said, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon just said that he had spent his time searching for what is good to do in this life. So the I think the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of like a research project for Solomon. A research project on life's purpose. And, he, and throughout this text, he's going to re recount his personal investigation into the purpose of life. And he's going to consider, is the purpose of life to indulge yourself? Is the purpose of life to be as rich as you possibly can be? Is the purpose of life to be as intelligent as you can be? Is the purpose of life to be as successful in your job as you can be? He's going to investigate all of these purposes. And throughout the course of his investigation, he's going to realize 
he's going to realize that life is short. He's going to realize that real life exceeds mankind's experience on this earth because, as he'll say in chapter 3 and verse 11, God has put eternity into our hearts. And as he says in verse 20 of chapter 3, we're all returning to the dust. And so he came to the conclusion that the ultimate purpose of life is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's chapter 12, verse 13. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And he's going to say that those statements found in the last verses of the book, he's going to say they're the end of the matter. In other words, Solomon spent life searching for purpose and looking down all these different avenues, and he comes to the conclusion that this life, this, the life on this side of the grave, it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's futile. Uh, futile. It's futile. It's futility is where I was going, but that didn't make sense. And he turns his attention to life after the grave because God had put his eternity into our hearts. And he says the real purpose of this life is to be prepared for the next life. And so there is, as Ben pointed out with the um, uh, audience, relatable to us, this is a timeless message about purpose that carries over to our lives today because I'm certain all of us have tried to search for the purpose of life to some degree, wondering why am I here as we discussed last Sunday night. And Solomon's telling you why you're here. To fear God and keep his commandments. That's the purpose. Guys, would any of you like to chime in? Uh, as the, about the purpose of the book, um, I think uh, the preacher is trying to teach us, especially uh, younger generations, to uh, know the wisdom that uh, without God, this life is vanity and this life is pure. So it it sounds like the preacher here, the quality is uh, pretty old in his age. And he observed all the things in his life and looked back and he's summarizing that, you know, I searched all things, all the meanings in this life, uh, putting God aside, but it was vanity. Only as I put God in my life, you know, I could see whole meaning of this life. So uh, I think uh, we need to uh, aim that wisdom uh, as we read this book and as we also live in this life too. That's what this book is all about, I think. You know, it's almost like that moment with your grandfather where you sit down and he's just telling you all about the things he had learned, telling you all the stories, all the moments that he wanted you to know about, and you're just sitting there and you're gaining all of that wisdom that he had acquired over all those years. You know, I've had many moments like that with my grandparents where you just walk away from that and say, I am so much better because I took the time to quit playing in the yard or whatever and just talk to my grandparents. And those moments are, are priceless. 
And I hope that some of you have that same experience. And if you are of the age of imparting wisdom like that, you know, there's a lesson to be learned here. You need to impart that wisdom because these younger generations need to know. That's exactly, I, I believe, what, what Solomon does in this book. And it's a, it's a great thing to, to witness how he does this, not only just to you know, his children or his grandchildren, but to the entire nation of Israel. These are the lessons he had to tell, and such a great thought to think about as we get into it. And you know, one last thought that really I meant to bring up when we were talking about authorship is that this might just be the last writing of Solomon. And if you go back and look at Solomon's story in 1 Kings chapter 11, it wraps up sort of ambiguously about whether or not Solomon was in a right relationship with God. You're left believing that maybe he wasn't. But then you read Ecclesiastes, as, as Mingu and, and Ben have alluded to, the, it seems to come from the perception of a, of a man at the end of his life, who's, who's come to understand things that he didn't realize when he was younger. And by the end of it, when he's given this declaration of fear God and keep his commandments, it makes you wonder, did, did Solomon right the ship? Did he correct his relationship with God? Did, did he come to, to uh, a point of repentance in his life that changed the end of his story for us? Uh, we will never know if that's the case, but it at least leaves open that, that possibility that 1 Kings 11 is not the end of the story. And, and so when we look at Ecclesiastes and we look at, at the wisdom that's being passed down, think of it in terms of somebody who, who may be looking at their life and realizing where correction needs to happen and how they had the purpose all wrong all this time and now they've come to the realization of what life is really about and they don't want people, other people to make the same mistakes that they did. Well, with that background information being provided, we want to jump into the text. We're going to, try to, we're going to want to cover the, the whole of chapter 1 tonight. So if you will, let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to go through verse 11 right now, but if you would read along with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. It's kind of a downer when you first read it. It, it's, it, it, it comes across very pessimistically. It, there, there doesn't seem to be much encouragement in the words of Solomon here. And yet this is the wisest man 
to ever live. So guys, as you look through the first 11 verses, what stands out to you? Well, the first thing that I believe we need to talk about is uh, verse 2. This is going to be the beginning of something he does throughout the entire book. He refers to vanity. Vanity is all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's a reason for that. As we've discussed, he had experienced all the things under the sun. He had experienced all the wealth, all the pleasure that he could possibly experience. He withheld himself from none of it. And yet at the end of it all, it is all vanity. And this, this word vanity is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Not that long of a book, but we see the word vanity 38 times in this, this Hebrew word, hebel. And we see that it, he's using this idea of vanity to establish his qualification of the things he's trying to say. He's saying, you may not have experienced it, you may not have experienced this wealth, you may not have experienced this pleasure, but let me tell you what, I have, and it was vanity. Him using this idea of vanity 38 times throughout the book is he's trying to tell them, I know what I'm talking about. You know, the best, uh, the best lessons I've ever heard in my life come from people who actually have experienced the thing they're talking about who have actually experienced what it's like to fall under that type of sin or that type of struggle or that type of experience that I've never experienced myself. Why? Because it's one thing for us to preach and to have never experienced ourselves. We just are preaching because that's what God wants us to preach. It's another thing to preach from a standpoint of someone who has been there and done that. You know, that's something I just always loved about Jeremy is he used his own life experience so much in his lessons. And I understood from that right there. And, and we all do that from time to time, and we try to relate. But listening to someone who's been there and done that is, is far more meaningful to me than to someone who has not experienced that. Because that person has experienced exactly what it's like to deal with the struggle I'm dealing with. And what do we see with Jesus? He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the sympathizing high priest. He is the one that can relate to all the things we struggle with. So I believe that's what he uses this idea of vanity for, is to establish his qualification for the conclusions he's about to make. This isn't just out of the wind. This isn't just, you know, uh, an old person that's cranky. This is a person who's experienced it. And he's telling the truth. And he's not going to fluff around. He's not going to uh, mince any words. He's getting straight to the point from the very beginning of the book. Vanity. And what a great uh, thought that is. And, you know... It does seem a little bit pessimistic, but when you try to understand uh, his life, that's all you could explain it as. All the pleasures I did, all of the wealth I had, all of it was useless. And that's, I'm going to quit my thoughts for there, but I have more to go. I think this um, reminds, of, reminds me of my former life. I, I, I became a Christian when I was 39. 
when I came to the United States at Martin Church of Christ. Um, before I came to the United States to study the Bible, I was a pretty successful uh, young man in Korea. And one time I was searching for wisdom with all my heart. I w one time I was searching for you know, wealth with all my you know, ability and I became pretty successful. But as I became a Christian, I mean, I left all those things in Korea, and I came to the United States to, the study, uh, to study the Bible, and I became a Christian, and I'm now like uh, the Kohalat, uh, who is the preacher. And as I looked back my former years before I became a Christian, it was vanity. The vanity, the Hebrew word originally means vapor, vapor, or breath. There's nothing, vapor has nothing. It doesn't last very long. It, 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 it is momentary. And what I thought in the former life was like that. So I agree with this in a book, what the Kohalat is saying. And this, that is the lesson that I had to uh, learn. And I, I'm, I'm very glad that I learned the lesson. So I became a Christian. Yeah, I think continuing this thought on the word vanity here, and I think we all have different thoughts on it because it's, I mean, it could be the theme of Ecclesiastes besides purpose is vanity. And growing up, vanity of vanities, I feel like was a phrase I just heard, and to me it kind of, I didn't really know what that mean because when I thought of something being, somebody being vain, I, these, the definitions didn't really add up very much. But when you study it and you really you start to figure out what it means, you know, the meaningless. I, I liked how the ESV translated it. Uh, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And to me, I thought that was a good way of kind of summer, summing up what he's trying to get across here. I've tasted it, I've tried it, I've experienced it, and everything is meaningless. And, and like Mingu was saying, it's just a vapor. It's, there's nothing, there's no substance to it at all. Um, so I thought that, that kind of helped me figure it out. And that, and that phrase, vanity of vanities, that's only, in, in studying this, I saw it kind of compared to holy of holies. It, it's that double usage of the word to, put, to, to provide emphasis on it. it. It's utterly meaningless, not vanity of vanities there. The, the other phrase I really want to look at, though, is coming in verse 3. And I think this is what makes the whole passage, to me, not seem so meaningless. Uh, what advantage does man have in all his works, which, which he does under the sun? When I read verses 2 through 11, it, it's kind of like Eeyore, I think. You know, everything is terrible, and the rain cloud follows me everywhere I go, and everything is just awful. And it's depressing. And if I were to hear a Christian say this, if a Christian came up to me and just said, Jay, everything is meaningless. Every aspect of life, everything I do, everything of nature around me, everything is meaningless. That would be problematic for me to hear a Christian, someone who believes in God, someone who has faith in God, to say that because those two things shouldn't go together. But this defining term here, I, to me, provides um, guidance to what he's getting at here in verses 2 through 11. It's under the sun. He's not saying a life in God, everything is meaningless. A life in God, everything is vanity. A life in God, there's no purpose behind it. He's saying a life under the sun. When you take God out of creation, vanity. When you take God out of man's purpose, 
vanity. When you, take God, when you take God out of the pleasures that we can have in this world, there's nothing in that. And so that's how I, I reconcile this passage, verses 2 through 11. It, it's not someone who has a faith in God and this, from that perspective, not saying Solomon doesn't, but from that perspective of having a faith in God, saying, I believe in God and I, and I live for Him and everything is meaningless. But rather, Solomon is saying, a life without God, everything is meaningless. A life, a life under the sun, when you take the Creator out of the creation, you have the, the sun rises, the sun sets. There's no glory. Creation is not singing His praises when you take God out of that, when you're looking at it in that way. And we're going to get a little more into that in the wisdom passage in a second. So I thought that was key to me for understanding this passage in the concept of who it's coming from, is the importance of understanding this, this is all coming under the statement of under the sun. Creation, under the sun. If, if the sun is the biggest thing out there, everything is meaningless. Our work, verses 7, I think, Kyle, I think you're going to speak to this in a second. Verses 2 through 7 more are the creation without God, and verses 8 through 11 is man's purpose without God. And I know Kyle's going to speak to that in a second. But I think that, that shows the futility of all things if God is not involved in it. And, and that helps me understand that passage a little better. Now, we look at Solomon here, and he keeps referring to himself as the preacher, as, as Ben talked about earlier. And like a good preacher, he likes a good illustration. So if you look here from between verses 1 and through 11 to prove his, his thesis that everything is vanity and meaningless, he gives you some illustrations of how, how that's the case. First, he appeals to nature, as Jay was just mentioning, and he'll, he'll appeal to... Um, uh, four different things in, in nature that have an endless cycle to them, a never-ending, repetitious cycle. So he refers to the earth. It remains the same, but its masters, mankind, humans, people sent to subdue it, they continuously die. And the relationship between the earth and man is futile in the eyes of Solomon because man is temporary. And then he talks about the sun, the rising and the setting of the sun and how it hurries across the sky for no real reason because it's just going to set and pop up tomorrow. And for him, the sun's activity is futile because it's repetitious. And then he talks about the wind, the blowing of the wind and how the wind's activity is futile because it just keeps doing the same thing over and over again, that repetition. And then he talks about the rivers and the streams and how they flow to the sea, but they never fill up the sea. The river's work is futile because it never comes to a completion in the sense that it never fills up the sea. So he appeals to these, these systems in nature to show that there is futility in the world. But then he transitions in verses 8 through 11 and applies the same principles to the activities of man. And if you look at verse 8, he indicates that man is always discontent. The eye is not satisfied, nor the ear filled. Man is always discontent. They are always incomplete. Like the rivers flowing to the sea and never filling it up. Man is never filled up. Man is never satisfied. And if you look at verse 9, he said, 9 and 10, he indicates that man is always repeating history. 
Is there a thing of which it is, uh, sorry, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. He's talking about the activity of man being repetitious. We're just repeating the same things that happened before. And then look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. He's saying the activity of man is futile because man's going to die and what he did is going to be forgotten. It's temporary. Just as he pointed to the earth and, 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 and uh, man's relationship being futile because it was temporary, so is the activity of man on the earth because it's going to be forgotten one day. And just as the man duplicating discoveries that have already existed, how that's repetitious, it's, it's repetitious just like the sun going across the sky and setting and doing it all again the next day. And the winds chasing each other. So he appeals to nature and then he points out how the same futility that you can find in nature applies to us. Life is meaningless without God. That's what he's building up to throughout this whole book. And these illustrations are here in chapter 1 to support his argument that all is vanity. Yeah, I think, I think that's the point. You know, verse 2 sets the thesis Mm-hmm. of what he is trying to about to say in verses 3 through 11 and actually 12 through 18 do this in a different point but the same goal of proving this thesis of verse 2 that all is vanity and then the verses 3 through 11 prove that and set that in stone and I love how you know let's make this about us and say verse 3 what profit has man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun you know, what he's saying is, it doesn't matter what you do. Why is life vain? Because you can't change anything under the sun. You're not able or powerful enough to change whether the earth continues. You're not powerful enough to change whether the sun sets. You're not powerful enough to change the flow of the rivers and streams and all the wind blowing and all the different nature things he mentions here, you're not powerful enough to make your generation last. You know, we have a lot of generational pride in this country, don't we? We've got the greatest generation. We've got the baby boomers. We've got everyone else that those two groups can't stand, right? And so we got all this generational pride. We got the millennials. They're the worst thing that's ever happened. Have you ever met a Generation Z? They're so much worse. You know, I'm a millennial, so that's why I say that. But when it comes to our generational pride, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because as soon as your generation shows up and starts doing something, it's over. The next generation has their turn and has their shot. As soon as you get that job done or that job promotion you want, guess what? It's over. It's time to retire. It's time to go and watch Westerns the rest of your life. It's a little loud right there. That's what happens in this life. 
It happens to everyone the same. The sun rises and sets. The wind blows on everybody just the same. And there's nothing that you can do about it. Your eyes are never going to get satisfied. How true is that? Boy, when I get that thing, you know what I want? The next thing. And that's how life continues to do. But just as Jay said, this is the life under the sun. He says it in verse 3, under the sun, and then he says it again in verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. But there is something new, and there is something to look forward to under God. So that's just my thoughts on that first section. Uh, what is stunning to me is that all is vanity. I mean, you know, think about this. You know, everything is vanity. But uh, some people say uh, when they hear these words that uh, everything is vanity, then some people say that you know, the preacher is pretty pessimistic. But I don't think so, because he is, uh, as a you know, preacher, uses this uh, skill or a literary device to emphasize this point that everything is vanity, but it is without God. That without God, everything is vanity. So what he is getting at is that we have to put God in our lives. Um, so the preacher is not saying that everything is uh, meaningless, but everything is meaningful with God. And that's what we have to be also careful about you know we should not think that you know everything in our lives under the he under under the sun is meaningless no but everything is meaningful with god we have to seek the meaning uh, taking god into our uh, into the consideration in our lives so that's what the preacher is saying i believe Okay, let's turn our attention to verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I implied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this, is also, this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Thoughts? I think uh, in this section, um, the, the author is applying the principle to the area of wisdom, and it is the same. Without putting God into consideration or without believing in God, uh, wisdom is the worldly wisdom or earthly wisdom or human wisdom is nothing. I mean, the, the wisdom is not complete. The wisdom is not uh, worthwhile to pursue. So, you know, without God, I mean, every perfect gift is, is coming from God. Only the wisdom 
uh, coming from God is the wisdom that really helps us uh, human beings uh, benefit. So uh, that's what I think uh, okay. the preacher is saying here. You know, what, what I've learned in my studies uh, at Fried Hardeman is, you know, is how to forget who said it, or I forgot who said it, uh, but they said the more you know, we'll just show you how little you know. And I think that's exactly what we can find from the life of Solomon. You know, it's a very unwise person who says, I got this thing all figured out. I know, every, I know it all. That's why we call them know-it-alls. Because they don't know nothing. Right? The more you know, and the more that you learn, and the more that you study, and the more that you discover, it should compel you to the knowledge of understanding that you know very little. That's how I feel when I'm in graduate school, and that's how I feel when I'm in front of some of my professors, and they're talking, and they teach me these things, and I'm opened up to a whole new world, and I'm just like, well, I just thought I had, I had it down. I thought I'd already understood that. No. The more you know, and the more that you learn, and the more wisdom you gain shows you just how little wisdom you actually have. That's how Solomon feels at the end of his life. He is the wisest man that ever lived other than Jesus. And he gained all the wisdom in the world, and it was a burdensome task to gain that wisdom. It was so burdensome because at the end of his life, he realized all the wisdom I gained just showed me how ridiculously inferior to God's wisdom I am. Because that is everything under the sun. All the wisdom I gained under the sun showed me how futile my knowledge really was. And his wisdom was great. He attained greatness, it said. He, had, he attained wisdom above all that had ever come before him. His father David, he had more wisdom than him. All that who led Israel before him, he was at the top of the knowledge food chain. And yet at the end of his life, it only brought sorrow. Because he did not seek the spiritual wisdom. He sought the earthly under the sun wisdom. Because the more you know, the more you learn, and the more that you study, it should lead you to the fact of that's, the, that's how little I know. Every single time. If it's any other way, that's when you find out you've bought into the vanity. You've bought into your own vanity. You should never leave a Bible study going, man, I got it all figured out. You should leave a Bible study hungry for more. And that's one of these lessons he's telling the assembly of Israel. And he's telling us tonight. We should always be seeking spiritual wisdom because that is worth something. Yeah, I, I, let me confess something. I have, I have a problem. Okay, and y'all are going to laugh about this. No, it's not too juicy. Don't get worried. I have a problem. I listen to way too many podcasts. No. I do. I do. Um, and I think this, I bring this up for this, and I'll be quick with this. I'd like to, for, to read you my next five podcasts on my 
I listen to this one called Stuff You Should Know, and they just go over things that you should know and you shouldn't. They're meaningless. The next four are my, my playlist, okay? This is what my week will consist of. Who gets the name Continents? How Macy's Thanksgiving Parade works? Plastic pink flamingos? My favorite, fruit flies, comma, why? And I'm intrigued about every one of them. I can't wait to learn about more. Fruit flies, why? That's a great question. I, have a pro I like to just learn this random facts, and sometimes the, the best case scenario is that one echo of a thought might come up in a lesson as an illustration. But none of that's going to lead me anywhere. Gaining this knowledge of this random assortment of things, it may provide a little bit of pleasure in this moment, or I'm walking my dog, or I'm driving to and from work. It may provide a, a, a brief illustration here and there. But this worldly wisdom, this wisdom under the sun, it's not going to profit me nearly as much if I pause that and turn on another sermon from a preacher I like to listen to. If I turned on the Bible app and read Ecclesiastes back to me. And I think like just the rest of these ministers have been saying, we go back into the text, whereas this, the pursuit of wisdom is not inherently wrong unless you take God out of it. And this is what Solomon had done. Verse 13, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. The pursuit of wisdom is something God strictly encourages us to do. James chapter 1, verse 5, Ask and it shall be given to you. Wisdom that includes God is the, is the best thing we can go, go about looking for and seeking for. I can listen to 10,000 hours of worldly podcasts, and I may gain a small nugget of here, I may, I may, I may gain a, a small illustration there, but one simple prayer from, of wisdom from God, one Bible chapter... One lesson, the wisdom that comes unfiltered from God, James chapter 3 would say, that's worth it all. The pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of these things, man working, none of these things inherently are bad. But when we remove God from them, and this is echoing what we've all been saying this whole time, when, when, then when God is removed from them, that's when they become meaningless. That's when they can also become a sin if, that's, if, they become taking, if they start to take you away from the pursuit of godly wisdom. You guys have hit on a, a, a word that stands out to me in this section in verse 13 where Solomon or the preacher said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. I think it's important to notice these verbs. This is activity. This is intentional. If you seek something you didn't just come up on it by accident. You intentionally went looking for it. And that's the activity that the author of this text is declaring he engaged in. And he may have attained great knowledge on this earth, but that same expectation to seek and to search is not just applied here. Let's think about Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, we've been harping on the idea, the theme, that all is meaningless under the sun. But we're all here tonight because we believe there is something above the sun. We all understand that there is a reality, a life, an experience beyond this one, that there is something greater in control and so we need to, as Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3, 
in verse 1, seek the things that are above and set our minds on the things that are above. Ultimately, I believe that's kind of the objective we have as we go through this study of Ecclesiastes, is we want to help point our attention to the things that really matter, the things that are not meaningless, as Mingu said, the things that are meaningful. And to do that, we have to set our minds on the things that are above. And by the end of this book, Solomon tells us what that entails. Fear God and keep his commandments. We're going to close out our time of study tonight with a prayer, but we want you to know that if anything we talk about tonight pricks your heart in any way, challenges you in any way, if anything we discuss and study tonight has led you to the point that you want to further study God's Word or that you want to become a child of God, then please come talk to one of us or one of our elders. Let's go to God in prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the time of study we've had tonight. Grateful that we can examine this book of Ecclesiastes. It is our prayer that as we go through this study over the next few weeks that we will uh, benefit from the, the wisdom espoused on these pages. And may, we, may we be seekers and searchers of your will. Help us, Lord, not to live under the sun. Help us to live above it. Help us, Lord, to seek out the wisdom that is from above. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us because we know that life really has no meaning without you. Help us to understand and appreciate that more and more every day. And may the lives we live reflect our fear of you and our desire to keep your commandments. Help us in that endeavor. May we be pleasing to you in all that we do. It's through your son's name we pray.